Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth ten thousand of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just uh, come before you this morning. I'm just thankful for your word. I just pray that we would never uh, cease to be amazed by your holiness, by your might, um, by your power, Lord. Um, We just are so thankful for you and what you have done for us. Lord, I pray that you would be with Pastor Mark uh, this morning. Um, And I pray that it would be the Holy Spirit speaking through him um, and that we would receive it uh, with humble hearts and open minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I was, as we were singing, I was thinking only in church can you sing such a graphic song about bathing in blood and it's a song of celebration. It's a joyful song. And you listen to those words. You listen to those words about, <laughs> I mean, it's gruesome. If it was any other situation, any other place, that would be a battle, battlefield song. But for the church, it's the truth that being bathed in the blood of Christ, that's our identity. That's who we are. And because of that, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear, and we can own, all we have to do is trust in God. His blood, Christ's blood, is enough to save us, and it's the only thing that can save us from the judgment of God. And that's, that's kind of where, where we're going. The last few weeks, well, probably the last three or four weeks, there's been a lot of, in a sense, positive way of, of reading 2 Samuel. God is in control of all things. His promises are always true. He is trustworthy. He is providential over history of man. Uh, one thing we can't say is that throughout the book of Samuel, the one constant has been the Lord, that he is working all things to the counsel of his will, not to the counsel of Samuel. <coughs> Excuse me. 
or Saul or Absalom or David. God is working to accomplish His desires, His will, His promises, specifically in this passage, His promises to David that He's going to grow old on the throne and that His Son will take His place. And that no matter what is happening around him, no matter what's happening in, the, um, in battles, no matter what's happening in the politics of the nation, no matter how bad things look, and right now for David, things look really bad, the Lord is going to accomplish exactly what he promises because he is faithful and he is trustworthy. But God, the Lord, is also a great judge. And the day of his judgment has arrived for Absalom. Now the final battle between father and son is ready to take place. It's about to happen, but there's no question in David's mind who's going to win. Because though David has mustered uh, an army of thousands... His army is still greatly outnumbered by Absalom's men. If we remember last week when we look, Absalom, uh, when we looked at, at the passage, it says Absalom's army was as great as the sand on the seashore. It was this huge multitude of people, the men of Israel. David has mustered thousands. <laughs> and yet, despite this difference of army size, David is confident that God's going to win the battle for him. And we hear the confidence when he says to his commanding generals, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. He's assuming they're going to make it to Absalom, that they're going to defeat his army, and Absalom's going to be captured, and judgment's going to be brought upon him, and What's going to happen is the generals are going to want to kill him because that's what they did to enemies. And he says, no, deal gently with my son. Because defeat, a defeat, he's so confident because a defeat for David means not just his death, David's death, but the failure of God's promises. And as we said, God's promises never fail. So David's confidence is not in his ability. It's not in his army's ability. It's in his God's ability, and his God has made promises. And so the battle is fought in a place of David's choosing, a forest that not only lessens Absalom's numerical advantage, but it also causes confusion amongst Absalom's unseasoned troops. Remember, David's army is made up of mighty men. Most of them are very well equipped, and they are very experienced. But Absalom's army is made up of, in a sense, draftees, conscripts, conscripts. Guys are just taken off of the farm and said, hey, you got to come and you got to fight for me. His army, Absalom's army, because of this, then in the forest becomes prey for David's seasoned troops. Seasoned troops. And in the end, on both sides, 20,000 Israelite men are killed. 20,000. And Absalom and his great army are defeated and forced to flee for their lives. But as he's fleeing, as Absalom's fleeing, 
he finds himself in trouble and his situation actually foreshadows the judgment that he's about to face. Now, we're going to read starting in verse 8, 9, all the way through 18. I'm about to read it. But I don't want us, okay, so I'm, I'm a visual guy. And so when I read things like this, it's very comical. Just the thought of seeing what happens to Absalom, at least at the beginning, okay? Don't let that distraction happen because what is happening to Absalom is a foreshadowing of very, very bad things for him. So let's start verse 9, verse 9 through 18. And Absalom happened to meet the servant of da- servants of David. Absalom was Uh, riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who told him, What, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt." But the man said to Joab, even if I, ha- if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there is something hidden, there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. In other words, If I had killed him, you wouldn't have stood behind me. You would have thrown me to David, and I would have faced judgment for it. And this is what Joab says. Joab said, I will not waste time with you, with like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand, and he thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, everyone to his, his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Now, It may sound strange to us today. No, it does sound strange to us today. But the mule was a sign of royalty in Israel. Don't know why. I'm sure there's a reason behind it. But the last thing we think of today for royalty and prestige is a mule. Usually we think the opposite of prestige and royalty. But Absalom's riding a mule on his Uh, was his way of proclaiming to everyone around him that he was the king. And it also meant that should things go badly on the battlefield, he would be able to flee in a much more quick manner than on foot. But as he's fleeing, because his army is defeated, as he's fleeing, his head gets caught in an oak. Now, the passage doesn't specifically say that it was his hair that was caught, But it is likely that that was the case. Now, assumptions, this is one of the rules of Scripture when you're reading Scripture. Assumptions are dangerous things, right? Well, that's just a good rule in life. Assumptions are dangerous things, especially 
when it comes to Scripture. And so any assumption has to be grounded within the text for it to be a safe assumption. And in this case, 2 Samuel chapter 14, verses 25 and 26, give us, gives us cause to believe that it was Absalom's hair that was the cause of his getting caught. Now in that passage, we're given a very, if you remember when we went through this, it was a weird passage describing the beauty of his hair and how heavy it was and how he cut it every year. And it's a weird, it's a weird scripture. It's meant, that passage is meant to communicate Absalom's pride. He loved himself. He was all about him. And now, that pride is leading to his downfall. God's judgment of Absalom is foreshadowed in four separate events very, very quickly in these verses. First, his great army is in disarray and it's utterly defeated. They're fleeing out of the, out of the forest and away and back home to their farms. Second, Absalom's mule decides to go under the thick branches of an oak. And if you read it, seemingly all on its own. He has no control over it. It just decides it's going to go that direction. Third, the mule's decision to go underneath this oak causes Absalom's head or his hair to get caught with no way of escape. And then finally, the mule just keeps on going. It just keeps running and he's dangling in the air like a pinata. That's the funny part of it. But the words of this predicament that he is in is described in a strange way. It says he was suspended between heaven and earth. And, and I think that's more than just to say he's hanging in midair. And this is where the funny part doesn't quite become so funny anymore. Because as one theologian puts it, Absalom was on the brink of judgment. He's suspended between heaven and earth, heaven and hell, if you want to say. In one foul swoop, Absalom's kingdom is stripped away. He's on the brink of God's judgment, which is about to come down hard upon him in the form of Joab, David's commander. And when Joab finds Absalom, he thrusts three spears into Absalom's heart, which does not kill him. And his armor bearers, Joab's armor bearers, come around and then they continue to stab and kill Absalom. What an inglorious and shameful way to die. But Absalom's judgment isn't finished. Instead of being buried in a tomb, as is fitting for a prince of Israel, his body is thrown into a great pit and a very great heaps, heap of stones is raised over him. This type of burial was more than just we want to make sure the animals don't get at the body. It was a burial that was reserved in Israel for criminals and enemies. During the conquest of Canaan, Achan was stoned, burned, and buried under a great heap of stones for his taking items after Jericho's fall. 
And later, after his defeat by Joshua and Israel, the king of Ai is hanged on a tree and then buried under a great heap of stones. And such a great heap was to be, in a sense, an Ebenezer. We've talked about that in the past. An Ebenezer is a, is a monument. It's a monument to those, in this case, to those who are passing by, as a warning against those who rebel against the Lord. Absalom may have created a pillar in the Valley of the Kings in order to be remembered by from the people or by the people, but it's this great heap of stones over him that will actually be his legacy. He was an enemy of David. He was the enemy of the Lord's anointed king, which made him an enemy of God. And those who reject the Lord's anointed king will face the Lord's judgment. But David's response at the hearing the fate of his son is actually unexpected in a certain way. Now, starting at verse 19, there is this long passage about runners and getting there early, and you'll understand that's actually foreshadowing what's going to happen in the chapter four. So we're not going to we're not going to touch base on that. We're not going to look at that, but we're going to read it because it's the word of God and it's there for a reason. Just remember, as we go through this, and you're asking these questions, what in the world? What does this mean? It's for next week. So starting with verse 19, then Aham. Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimeaz ran, of the, ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted his, up his eyes, he looked. He saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer, and the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man is running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He's a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimeaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimeaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know where, what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, 
May the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. David's army has won the battle. His kingship has been restored. His enemy has been defeated. And one would think he would be jubilant. He'd be excited. He'd be happy. He'd be relieved. But his enemy was also his son. And any loving father would understand David's chief concern is Absalom. Is it well with the young man Absalom? He almost dismisses the fact that his men won the battle. That 20,000 Israelites were killed to restore him to the throne. But remember, David isn't worried about the outcome of the battle. He already knew he was going to win. With God on his side, who could stand against him? And so when he hears about Absalom's death, his anguish overwhelms him. Let's be honest, Absalom was a wicked man. He was not a good man. He disregarded and he rejected David as the anointed king of the Lord. His goal was to displace the true king and put himself on the throne. And yet, David's heart aches at his death. Would that I had died instead of you. And this is where David's heart is revealed. You, people argue, well, why? Why, did, why was he mourning? Was he mourning because he was his son? Was he... Was he mourning because David feels guilty that this whole incident for the last 11 plus years has been because he committed sin against, against Bathsheba? Well, his heart is revealed to us. He's still the shepherd king. He's still a man after God's own heart because no matter what the reason is, his heart is broken that it's come to this. Not only the defeat or the killing of 20,000 men in Israel, but the killing of his son. Absalom may have been a wicked man. It doesn't mean he didn't do any good. I'm sure he did a lot of good things in his life. But before the Lord, he was wicked. But even so, David did not take pleasure in the death of his son, no matter how wicked he was. Now, there are three things in this chapter for us today as the church, those who are God's people. And remember, this this book is written for the people of God who were in exile in Babylon. It was compiled and put together for them. So this is not for unbelievers. This is Lessons for us as his people. What can we learn as God's people today, as the church? Well, there are three things that I say first. As the Lord's true anointed king, Christ's victory over his enemies is assured. First Corinthians, we're going to go through a lot of scripture, but write these down. You can look them up later. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 56. This is what Paul says. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. 
Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, we shall all, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the, imper- when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Now on the cross, Christ fought and won the battle against our enemies. We've said that over and over again, our enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And it's a battle that we could not have won on our own power. But though our enemies no longer have power over us as God's people, they are not powerless. They still tempt. Death still holds sway over us to a certain degree. We are perishable. This body will one day die. Which is why he says, Paul says, when the imperishable or perishable puts on the imperishable when this perishable body this dying body does finally physically die those who are in christ who are his people will put on immortality we will live forever in the presence of god and so though our enemies don't have our power over over us anymore they are not powerless They're still actively working against Christ and his will and against us as his people. But through Christ, the reality is, is that their complete defeat is inevitable. On the last day, Paul says, when the trumpet sounds, when Christ comes a second time, he will come as the great judge, not as the Savior. Our enemies of Satan, sin, and death will be powerless to win. And this is not a wish, it's a surety. Christ's victory is assured. And so as his people, we have nothing to fear. The battle is already won. Second, Like Absalom, everyone will one day face the judgment seat of Christ. When he comes, when Christ comes, every person will stand before him. 1 Peter 4, 5. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That is Christ. Acts 10, 42. And he commanded us to preach to to the people and to testify that he is the one, Christ is the one, appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. See, on that final day, everyone living and dead, that's everybody, everyone will be forced to stand in the presence of Jesus Christ and will have to give an account of his or her life. Those who have rejected Christ as king will find a judgment of everlasting death, just like Absalom. So in other words, for those who have rejected Christ right now, they are hanging between heaven and earth, just as Absalom was. But those who did not reject, but willingly submitted themselves to Christ as the anointed king of the Lord, 
will find acceptance by Christ and life everlasting in his presence. And the truth that every single one of us, you and I, believer and unbeliever, we will stand one day before the judge, that should put the healthy fear of God into us. Because in that moment, our good deeds in this life will be like filthy rags. I had a conversation this summer with a friend who said, there are so many in the church who say that everybody's bad. You never do anything good. There are a lot of people who do a lot of good things. And that's true. I think there's some churches that it's all bad, bad, bad. You are horrible people trying to guilt people into salvation, trying to guilt people into heaven, if you want to say But the reality is, is when we talk about good works, that our good works are as filthy rags, that does not mean that they weren't good things to do here on earth. That they're filthy rags, which has a very, very graphic meaning behind it. If you're curious, we could talk about it afterwards. They're filthy because they're not enough for God. They are not enough in the sense of I walk into, I'll get up to heaven and I'm standing before Christ and I say, but I did so much good. And he's going to say, good for you. Do you love me? That is the determining of how this judgment before Christ is going to go. Our good deeds in this life will be as filthy rags before Christ. Because our eternal judgment is not based upon our works. It's based upon our faith in Him. That does not mean we should not do good works. It means we should not rely on those good works to determine our salvation. We do good works because we're saved by Christ, not in order to be saved by Him. Third, like David... God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 18, verses 30 and 30 to 32. Therefore, I will judge you. He's speaking to Israel here. Therefore, I, God, will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, And make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Or later on, Ezekiel 33, verses 10 and 11. And you, son of man, he's speaking to Ezekiel, say to the house of Israel, thus have you said, This is Israel speaking now. Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, especially in their eternal death. He is a God who loves all of those who are created in His image. But He is also a holy God. 
He cannot and will not have unrighteous, imperfect, sinful, and wicked people in His presence. His justice for their wickedness, His justice for their rebellious ways must be satisfied. Otherwise, He would not be a just judge. He calls each and every one of us to repent of our sinful rebellion against Him, to turn to Him, and to find life everlasting. If you're a believer, you've done this. But if you are not, He's saying, don't be like Israel. Don't reject the King. I take no pleasure in your death, but your death will come if you do not repent and believe. David cried out in verse 33, Would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son? Well, God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die the death that we deserved. He willingly paid the price for our sins. He died instead of us. But this is only true for those who believe. Because like Absalom, those who in this life reject Christ will find the judgment of God for them to be death everlasting, away from His mercy and away from His love. This chapter is a chapter of judgment, not of rejoicing for David. Which king are we following? Which king are you following? Are you looking to somewhere else besides Christ for salvation, for eternal hope, for the way to heaven? The question is, who is your king? Are the, the people and the things of this world? We've talked about that, that even us, even we ourselves, are powerless before the true king. To, to trust in ourselves, to trust in our works, to trust in this world, to trust in our wealth, to trust in our education, to trust in our goodness. We just sang a song, all of it will be burned away. All of it will be meaningless as we stand before Christ. Because the only thing that matters in the end for our eternal salvation is do we belong to the King? The things of this world, the people of this world are powerless. And in Christ, those who believe and trust in Him receive an inheritance that cannot be taken away. He is the high King of heaven. He is the treasure that we are called to seek. He is the one as His people that we put our trust in Him. Like David's army, we, we're, we're outnumbered. All seems lost. But the king is like, I've already won. You have nothing to fear. And though they take your life, you will be mine forever. In Him, our victory is inevitable and final. Without Him, it's 
defeat and judgment of everlasting death await. There is no middle ground. There is no neutral party. And so this chapter calls Israel and Babylon, put your trust in Christ, repent. It calls us today, put your trust in Christ, repent. Don't wait. You don't know when your last moment is. You don't know when he's going to call you before his presence. And so put your trust in him. Because the reality is, is that the judgment day is going to come. And if you are hanging between heaven and earth, you will not be going to heaven. He will judge. And only those who repent, only those who believe, only those who belong to him will find their place in heaven. And so turn your eyes to him. Repent. And as Ezekiel said to the people, repent and turn and live. Live in him. Father, I pray for us this morning as your people that we would stand firm on the reality that we belong to you. You have already won the battle. There is nothing to fear. But Father, I pray that We too, as your people, we would remember there are people in our lives, there are people even in this room possibly, those who are hearing this online, that that, Father, they do not belong to you. They are striving to live in their own power, in their own works. They are putting their trust in a false king. And I pray, Father, that you would soften their hearts. I pray you would open their eyes to the reality that the judgment that they are facing will lead to eternal ruin and eternal death. No joy, no peace, no happiness. Father, open their eyes to the reality that their good works, as good as they may be, are not good enough for you, Father, to allow them to heaven, into your presence forever. May they repent and believe become part of your family and help us father as your people as we leave this place to be encouraged our king has won you have won and so we have nothing to fear help us to go into this battle this week that we will be facing and may we stand firm in the truth that you are good you are just you are right and you have won already We are yours, and so may our lives this week proclaim that truth in your name. Amen. Why don't you stand with us as we sing our final song?